Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 103rd episode of the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with Britain's Queen of Disco, Tina Charles, who had a string of international hits in the late 1970s, including Dance Little Lady Dance, Dr. Love, Love Bug, I'll Go Where Your Music Takes Me, and of course the chart-topping I Love to Love. Tina also contributed to other classic songs, such as Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me by Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel, I'm on Fire by 5000 Volts, and Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. This interview took place at Tina's home in Surrey in 2003, and I began by asking her what music she listened to in her early life. Were you really into pop music? Yes. Oh, yes, I used to go to sleep with it on every night. Radio Caroline. Was it Luxembourg? Luxembourg, Radio Caroline was my Mm. main one. And anything in particular that took your fancy those days? Oh, everything. I mean, Manfred Mann. I can remember Pretty Flamingo. I like Creedence Clearwater Revival. I know that sounds bizarre, but I thought that lead singer had something about him. His voice and something that really did something for me. All those sort of, you know, I mean, that was probably the 60s, wasn't it? When did you first sing? What age? Nine, ten. I mean, I was, I was singing. In, I mean, I know it's an old cliche, but in front of the mirror with a hairbrush. Anything in particular? Actually, Diana Ross was my main when I got a bit older, but I was always oh, making up my own songs, you know. I remember Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. I made up my own words to the one of his songs. And I was, I mean, I couldn't have been more than 12 years of age. And I did the Ilford Town Hall at the age of 12, because I did my first demo with Elton John at 13. Tina Hoskins is your original name? That's right, yes. Yeah. So what were your parents' names and jobs and stuff? Well, my father's name was Charles Hoskins, right. which is where I took the Charles from. He was a dye maker um, in the old days. Don't have them now because mm-hmm. it's all done on computer. My mother worked in a clinic as the receptionist all her life, a baby clinic right. in Dawson in London. Brothers and sisters? Uh, one brother, Warren. He's a um, financial controller of a company in London. And any performing in your family at all? Any show business? Not really. My father always wanted to be an actor. <clears throat> and we've got a picture of him in an amateur dramatic um, playing something in Shakespeare. Um, but that was all, really, nobody... What did they want for you originally, do you know? Did they sort of um, want my daughter to be a... No, my parents were very good because they never told me... I mean, I wanted to be, from the age of sort of ten, a singer. Instead of my parents saying, oh, you'll never do that, they actually sent me then to stage school. Which one? Corona in Hammersmith. Mm-hmm. And I used to get the tube all the way to Hammersmith every day from Essex, mm-hmm. which was a two-hour journey. You know, like I wasn't the rich kid. All the kids at Corona were actors, daughters mm-hmm. and sons, and, and they lived in big, huge houses. And I was in, like, a council house mm-hmm. in Essex. I can remember my parents actually scraping pennies together to give me my school dinner money. I mean, they gave up an awful lot for me. They give up everything, really, because it wasn't cheap in those days for two working-class people to send their daughter to a stage school. And then I started mixing with all these sort of actors and actresses, kids and... Anyone in particular there that um, Um, we know now? Fraser Hines went there. Emmerdale. Oh, Mark Lester. Oh, yes. Because I bunked off school with him, and I actually didn't get expelled because he'd just done Oliver or he was just getting the part for Oliver. And because I was with him... And we were going around the circle line, <laughs> just going around in a circle. 
And the teacher, when we got back, she was mad. And I would have been expelled had it not been for the fact that I was with him and they'd have had to expel him as well. Yeah, they wouldn't have wanted to do No, because he was bringing in yeah. too much money, yeah. so I got away with that one. But he was a nice, nice lad. You were training as a singer when you were at stage school or just a musical thing? No, I was or? acting and fencing right. and ballet yeah. and tap. I mean, because that's what you do at stage mm. school. It wasn't actually mainly singing. It was dancing and I was very good at fencing. I beat the top um, guy fencer. I've still got my foil upstairs oh, yeah, okay. and I can still do the moves. Okay. Uh, what about um, adverts? Did you do any commercials when you were a kid? Or like yes, that? Or... I did. I did the um, Hey Mr Cross and Mr Blackwell. Do you really make tomato soup with cream? Now that one went out singing for on you. It, yeah, or just singing. Oh, yeah. No, I was singing. They oh, never okay. used my face, but I was always. And I did the Vauxhall Chevette. Oh, I did numerous commercials. I can't remember. Did you so do long child ago. acting? I went for the part of police, sir, but I didn't get it. In right. the, I mean, everybody. We were all sent on mm-hmm. so many um, auditions, auditions but yeah. I never got anything visually. But I always got the singing ones of the child singing, but they never used my face. They used to use another child's face. Yeah, why was that? Well, I suppose they've got an idea, haven't they, advertising people, that they've got, that child probably had the right face but mm. couldn't sing, so they put mm. the voice with the... Which was fine by me. Did you want to be an actress at all? Um, just a singer? Just a singer. I tried acting at school, but I actually forgot my lines, so I... I sort of did what Max sometimes does, my son, if you're not good at something, straight away, forget it, whereas I didn't persevere. I think I would have made, actually, a very good actress, because, you know, I can lie like the best of them and make, make it look pretty convincing, which is all you're doing, acting. It is. <laughs> so, did anyone there at Corona say to you, you know, you really have got a very special voice, you're outstanding of all our students, or anything like that? No, I think because it sounds a bit sort of snooty, but it was very sort of elitist, in a way. I was very much the wallflower that nobody took a lot of notice of me. Only when I became famous did they then put me in the prospectus, because they put who went there. And it was no thanks to them that I actually did become famous. It was all my own hard work and my parents and everything else. I think because of the background I came from as well, you know, because I was like the working-class kid. They were used to having all the actresses and actresses' daughters, and they were all quite affected, and, you know, and I was just the kid from Essex. So how did it all happen for you? At what stage and what age and how? I started doing demos at 13. There was a band or a girl, a group, called the Avons, Valerie Avon, and she did a track called Kissing in the Backseat with Fred. And she saw me singing at the Alford Town Hall when I was, like, 12, and she thought she's got it. So she plucked me out and then became my manager, and she also was a songwriter... From there I started doing demos, that's right, Tim Pan Alley, which was the old Denmark Street. That's where I met Reg, who was Reg Dwight, just Mr Nobody at the time. So what was he like then? He was very shy, actually. I know that's hard to believe, but he was, you know, he just bought, I can always remember, a pair of crocodile shoes, and he was going, what do you think? And I was only 13, and I said, oh, they're nice. And we just both sat there, I remember, in the recording studio. Can't remember the song, can't remember how it went. It must have gone well, or I'd have known we were doing demos together and then 14 came along and 15 came along and I started working at the NCO club in Ryslip which was a American airbase with a band mm-hmm. I was signed to CBS at 15 and did three or four singles four it was under your name then was it yes so when did you adopt Tina Charles then because at the time Mary Hopkins Hopkins was it had just had a hit with Those Were The Days and we thought that Hoskins and Hopkins was too similar. 
Was Elton John doing backing vocals on all your first few singles then? Yes, he did, because he was a backing singer. That's yeah. what he was doing then. He was just like, and that's exactly what I turned into, was a backing singer. Did you rate him? You think he yes. Did? You did? Yes. Oh, he's excellent and very quick. It's the ears and, and you know. Quick learner, you mean? Or quick learner and he knows music, but mm. also very adaptable, mm. very sort of bendy. Not, you get some singers that just can sing something one way. I suppose that's why I was a session singer, because it was the adaptability of been able to turn yourself into anything they want you to be. I can just remember doing the singles that we did in Chapel Studios mm -hmm. in London, which was a huge place with a big orchestra. I mean, those days you did it with an orchestra at the time. I think he went his way and I went my way, and then it was quite a few years after, I think, that he then became famous. Have you been to any of his concerts? Yes, I did. I did go to a concert. Oh, this is going back in the 70s. Because he said to me, oh, I can't believe it. Number mm. one with I Love to Love. Mm. And he, he has a joke. I remember him saying, I, and I'm saying to people, I used to do demos with her. Mm. And I remember that now. Yes, I did. But you remember him fondly then? Yes. Mm. Yes, he was a nice, well, he is a nice guy. I mean, mm. scratch the surface of all these, some people and you find the real people mm. underneath. So how do you feel that he is an absolute global megastar? You know, and that you've had your success, but, you know, you're still having success. Do you wish you'd had that No, time? oh, God, no. I'm really pleased for him, and I'm, I'm really... I mean, I wouldn't want to change anything about my life, about... I think to be on that sort of level must be actually living in a goldfish bowl. I don't think I'd enjoy that very much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think he's obviously now grown used to that, and you have to adapt. I mean, God, what would it be like? You know, you've got the money and the mansions and the... It's like Posh and Bex, how really, when the doors are closed, you are a person, you know, you're not an object. I don't feel jealous, I don't feel any envy. I'm proud that he's done so well. You recorded a few early singers, yeah. they didn't go anywhere. No. Then I met up with a guy called Tony Evans, who had the Tony Evans band at Leicester Square, because mm. in those days it was mecca, mm -hmm. you know, dancing around the handbags and the disco balls. And um, he then managed me and said, oh, and so then I joined the man label and I did tours with Tom Jones, <coughs> uh, Engelbert Humperdinck, Gilbert O'Sullivan I was on all of their tours because it was the same record company that's the one What about Tom Jones, tell us a nice Tom Jones story To me he was just an older man, although he was Tom Jones, I mean he was great to work with, Engelbert was fantastic and The Bachelors because we, oh, we stayed in a, in a boarding house and he was a really nice gentleman, Tom was far more of a showman and more mm. of a you know, Jack the Lad. Yeah, I mean, but that was part of his... Yeah. How did your parents feel about you being in that sort of scene at that age? Because you were very young. Were they worried um, for you? No, they weren't, because I was kind of... I grew up pretty pretty quick. I had my head on my shoulders. What age did you have boyfriends, by the way? To be honest, it was very difficult to have boyfriends, because I lost... I'm not saying I lost my youth, because no, that's the mean, bad way of yeah, putting it, because I... I was working six nights a week at the Empire Leicester Square and the NCO club from 15. So boyfriends were sort of something that were very rare and few and far between. You know, you'd just go out for a drink with somebody and then I'd say, I'm sorry, I can't see you because I'm working six nights a week and I only get Sunday off. Did anyone say to you, Tina Charles, you'll be a star one day, you'll have a number one record? Me. Yeah. I did, nice yes. Yeah, mm. totally, and my father. Well, that's what it was all about because when I started doing sessions, which I must say I immensely enjoyed, I love being a session singer. You turn up, you get there, you're given the song, 
like the Steve Harley thing that was yeah, Linda funny. Lewis myself you do what you're doing and you go and you get paid and you don't have any of the autograph hunters not that I'm saying I don't like that but you are you're your own person and you're anonymous and you can just slip back on the train or nobody and I enjoyed that immensely um, and I did lots of singles <coughs> under different names. Apart from Carbon See Me, what other famous singles you do before 5,000 Oh dear, what did I do? I did so many things. Oh, Ian Dury and the, I was on the, all his blockhead stuff. Um, I was on the Kilburn and the High Roads before that. Um, if you look on the back of all the Kilburn and the High Roads, it's special thanks to Tina Charles. Is he nice? Very, very nice. Um, and I toured with Steve Harley as well, doing festivals and things. So many people... I did a lot of adverts, so many adverts. I remember that the agency, you know, the checks would be coming through the door, like you wouldn't believe, for repeats. Oh, God, yeah. What do you think is the greatest tribute you've ever been paid? The greatest tribute that I was ever paid was when I did the two Ronnies, and I did the whole series of the two Ronnies, the first series they ever did. Oh, those two were fun. I mean, Ronnie Corbett with the glamorous wife, absolutely beautiful wife. And Ronnie Barker's wife, that was the real mumsy, just looked like she'd baked a few cakes at home and her jumper was all done up, wrong buttons. Mm. And Ronnie Corbett had this tall, beautiful... Mm. And I just thought, oh, isn't that so... Mm. It was just amusing. Mm. But they were lovely to work with, mm. both of them. I mean, I was only 15 and they really did help me. And mm. In fact, the whole crew were on the two Ronnies. It was great. It was the Radio Times then, wasn't it? It was the only thing that you used to be able to get. And the guy had done a little piece... He said, watch the two Ronnies tonight, up-and-coming singer Tina Charles, yeah. doing River Deep Mountain High, yeah. and it's the best I've ever heard it sound, oh, right. ever. I used to so get... when did it take off and how? It took off at, well, when I met Bidu, really. The 5,000 Volts song I actually did before I did I Love to Love. Yeah, I'm on Fire, which was the number one everywhere. Yeah. 1975, that was, but I only got paid £200 session fee. Oh, which was pretty, yeah, no and royalties. I, no royalties, nothing. Which is fair enough. I took the, I'm not one of these people to say, well, I did, you know, I took mm. the money at the time. I, I was booked as a session singer. I did the lead vocal in two hours. Boom, done. Came away, didn't think anything of it. Mm. Next thing I know, it's number one in Germany, number two here, everywhere in the world, even America. And I got 200 pounds. I mean, for once in my life, I was a bit envious, I must say. I'll be totally honest because I thought I've been striving all my life to get a number one record or just a hit mm. record and it happens and I can't say it's me because I was signed up to CBS so that they couldn't say it was me anyway and I had the Daily Mirror on the phone I had the Sun I had all the newspapers they were saying we know it's you come on tell us and I said I, I can't no comment because if I'd have said it was me CBS would have said well what are you doing doing a lead vocal when you're signed to us I was thinking damn it it was like it's happened and I can't did it come out it came out not too much long after. I don't know how it came out, but I picked up the sun one day and it just said on the, it was front page, 5,000 volt shock, typical sun. And it said, Luanne Peters is not the real singer because she, I don't know if you remember the one in 40 Towers when he's in the closet and puts his hands on her breasts. That was her pretending it was me on top of the pops and she was like the front woman for 5,000 volts. Yeah, so then it all came out. It's a 5,000 volt shock. And it had a picture of Luanne Peters, and I always laughed at this with her boobs. And there was one of me, you have to turn the page though, and it said the real singer. And the picture of me was like an inch big. And the picture of her was huge because she was. And, but the cat was out the bag then. And I didn't get into trouble with CBS, and they said, fine, it was a session, you know. But she sang on their later one, Dr. Kiss Kiss. No, 
No, that was somebody else. I don't think Luanne Peters could sing. That was the problem. She looked fantastic, but she couldn't sing. She was a model. I sort of did a few gigs with the guys for 5,000 volts. Why I did that, I don't know. But I was a kid, so it was fame, wasn't it? And that's what I wanted at the time. Then I met Bidu. I met Bidu through a session singer called Lee Vanderbilt, who said to Bidu, I've got a girl singer that I work with a lot, a session singer, who I think would be brilliant for you to... Because Bidu was looking for a girl singer at the time. Well, he was a producer. He's a... Yes, and he produced Kung Fu Fighting. We did You Set My Heart on Fire first. And I remember the guy saying it was the easiest song ever to sell. He walked into Sony or CBS at the time mm-hmm. and played it and they were like, yep, sign her up tomorrow, now. What was your first solo hit? You set my heart on fire. We went around the country <clears> in a fire engine, smelling of fumes, nightmare, but we did all the radio stations. It was an underground hit in New York and still is, still played. I mean, it's, it's, everyone thought I was black. They were so surprised when we did I Love to Love as the next single. And all that work had paid off because all the radio stations just went with it. That song, I Love to Love, was the one that really made you mm. famous. Yeah, because that was number one everywhere. I'd been in the business so long. And I think the one thing maybe that grounded me was that I came from the bottom and worked my way through to the top rather than coming from nowhere. Mm. Suddenly, you're, I mean, like Gareth Gates and Will Young and all these people, mm. it must be hard to cope with it when it happens so quickly because... Even for somebody that had come through the ranks, the number one hit still was amazing. I mean, life does change. Was there like a big moment when I Love to Love came out that you felt, wow, I've really made it? Mm-hmm. At Wembley, when, when I got the gold discs, and I had a picture of my father, bless him, because he was always with <coughs> me all along. You were doing a concert at Wembley? I was doing a Capital Radio something or other, and there's a picture somewhere of my father with the gold disc going, yes, we've done it, after all the hard work. And I remember the flat I had, because I was living with Trevor Horn at the time. OK, um, Buggles, Frankie Goes to Hollywood mm-hmm. producer. Mm-hmm. He's just done Seal again. Um, How did you meet him? He was my bass player. And he was working in the band I was working with, the Nicky North Band, when we were at Purley. God, I've had a career, you know. <laughs> at the Purley Orchid. How long were you an item for? Three years. And we lived together in a little flat in Streatham. And I remember that <clears> when <throat> I Love to Love hit number one, I didn't have any vases because we only had this tiny little flat, no vases, and I was putting all the flowers in the bath and then milk bottles. I was just, what can I do? There was, like, flowers arriving at the door that you wouldn't... It was like a florist in this little flat we had. I mean, it did change my life. And then Trevor, because he was a bass player, he became my MD bass player because he was talented, you know? What's your favourite of all your lovely tunes? I think I'll Be Your Light. Was Dance Little Lady Dance, was that written for you? Yes. Because you were a little lady? Little in one way, but little as it was wide, I suppose. I suppose it was, and people then used to call me the little lady after that. And then there was I'll Go Where The Music Takes Me and Dr Love. Dr Love was a good track, I liked that. But you were widely regarded as the British queen of disco. Well, I was in the 70s, I suppose. On the um, 70s programme that they did, I I Love 76, Mm. they were saying that Tina Charles was the British queen of disco and Donna Summer was the American... And Donna Summer was probably a bit more, she's a bit more sort of funkier, a bit more funkier. I was a bit more European disco. She was more American disco. And that's where people were confusing it. And maybe they were thinking, well, she was the glamorous black lady that, and I was the kind of dumpy lady that, you know, maybe that's, I don't know. It's a shame, actually, that I'm sort of labelled as, I suppose now I'm not so naff, am I? (laughs)
What do you look back on and say that was my finest hour? I think doing the Goodwood Park in Singapore was that was pretty good. I just that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was one of these very very upmarket hotels and. We had the band with me and Trevor and I had two guitarists, a bongo player, Louis Jardin, who's now a top session player. Oh, we just went out to Singapore and had mm. such a good time. I will never forget Singapore. Do you do anything really outrageous? Outrageous. I've never taken drugs, never been my scene. Yes, I did, actually. Pretty outrageous. I had too much champagne once when I did a gig. My agent laughs at this as well, Tony Tenton. I went to Dubai... Tony kept telling me how important it was and how I had to have a nice sparkly dress and it was all the wives of the richest Arabs in Kuwait and it was a Valentine's do. So you can imagine in my head it's building up and it's building up and I'm thinking, what if I forget the world? What if this happens? What if that happens? And I'm thinking, what if? Because he's telling me how amazing it's all. So I get there and I'm it's all fantastic with all the hearts and flowers and I'm thinking all these rich people and, and he said, and if you do well, you'll probably get them giving you Rolexes and giving you this and... And I was like, right, OK. So I've, and the pressure of that on it in itself is actually quite, you know, so I oh, just have some champagne and I got some Valium. Somebody said, oh, that will calm you if you get nervous. So I took this Valium and champagne. I thought, oh, I'll just have another glass. I must have drunk, I don't remember, a bottle and a half of champagne with a Valium, with a Valium. Of course, I got on stage and it, it almost seemed as if it all just hit me at once. And I just stood there and I went, right, so... Uh, where am I? I was totally... I didn't know who I was. I didn't know my name. And I looked at the guy at the DJ box and I went, so anyway, what are we doing now then? And he was going, dance little lady. And I saw my agent with his head in his hands like this going, no. I was sort of going, dance little. I got my heel caught in the hem of my dress and I was hopping across the stage trying to get my heel out because I'd made a hole in it. And I was like, and I came off stage and the, the agent over there, because, you know, you get the two agents, he was like, I don't believe this. I don't remember anything from there. I went to bed and I, I just woke up and there was this awful, oh, my God, what happened? I can't remember anything. I had one of those can't-remember moments. And then at breakfast, I thought, do I go down and face these people, these agents, or do I just hide? I thought, well, I've got to face them. And I remember walking in and I thought, because I'm a very much sense of humour, can get you out of most things. I said, hi, guys. Tony was like, hi. And I went, I suppose a Rolex is out of the question. <laughs> and I remember on the flight home, Tony was sitting there with his face. The agent, he didn't speak to me all the way back. But then he says now, he tells that as his dinner party to boy George and everybody because he has George over. He said, and people are in fits because he said it was the funniest, even though it was embarrassing and everything else. Looking back now, he said it was the funniest thing I have ever seen in my life. You know, the heel court and the hopping and... Do you ever think, oh, the 70s were the best time of my life? No. Were they the best time? Most people probably assume they were for you. Actually, no. Not really the best. And it wasn't so much... I mean, everything was going very well. And I loved my life and everything else. But I suppose to keep that pace up, you'd have to be... um, I mean, I, I used to think having a hit record, I suppose, would have been easy. I was only young. Mm. But, of course, when it happens, you don't realise that you're going to be at airports and mm. you're living out of a suitcase, you don't see your family. It was the best times in some ways, but in other ways it was sort of bloody hard work. Mm. And I'm a studio person. I'm more of a studio person than I am a live person. I love the studio, working in the studio. I'm quick. You know, I come in on a breath. When they drop in, I just... All they give me is two words before and I'm there you've got record companies that they don't really care 
I don't think about the artist some of the time. As long as you're... Oh, I remember collapsing on top of the pops and it was like a B12 in the bum. I'd been travelling everywhere to promote I Love to, was it I Love to Love or one of the songs. And I always remember I got to the top of the pops, I'd come off a flight from somewhere to somewhere and, and I was absolutely exhausted and I fell. And I remember David Essex saying, it's all right, love, have a B12. That, and they just gave me an injection in the back here. And I, David Essex didn't administer that injection. No, no, he didn't, thank God. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> no, no, that would have been a story. But, you know, that was what you did, just to get you to do the show. Yeah, yeah. It was like collapse afterwards, but don't do it before, please. You know, have a B12, you'll be fine for a few hours, then go home and have a sleep. And I think probably now they still work people as hard. And when you're flavour of the month, I can understand why, because they're trying to capitalise on while you're successful. But I think sometimes they forget that you are human, you're not a robot. I used to get fed up with waiting around at airports. Yeah, and well, it's it's yeah flying, I'm fine. But it's just hanging around. Yeah, and oh, yeah, I've dropped 500 feet in an air pocket with a load of nuns. And I've been on a very bad flight coming back from, oh, it was south of France to Paris. I thought I, thought I was going to be dead. This flight, it was just everywhere. And people were... You could see just by the looks. And even I was reading something upside down. I wasn't reading it. I was thinking, we're going to go in a minute. He's going to lose it. You could almost feel him trying to hold it. And it was going, oh. I arrived in Paris. I was like, lots of brown trousers, I think, got off that plane. Jesus Christ. But I'm not worried. I always think, no, the pilot knows what he's doing. He's fine. I'm probably more worried on in a train, actually, these days than flying. I fly a lot now, and it doesn't bother me. You must have met loads of fantastic stars when in the early, in the mid-70s or whatever. Yeah. Who did you meet and you got your nice stories about them? Smokey. They were lovely, Smokey. But everywhere I used to go, it was funny, in the 70s, I used to do TV and then they'd be fu- we'd always meet doing the same show and in the end they used to put sort of big banners outside the building, outside saying, welcome Tina, hello Tina. You know, we used to all get on really well and go for boogies afterwards. Oh, Abba because we were on the same record label. And we always used to be at the same functions, like the CBS convention, they used to call it in them days. And I used to sit next to Agnetha. She, well, she told me about her children, and she gave me her perfume. And then we danced together in Sweden at the Swedish convention. I remember how tall she was and how small I was. And we were, we have, and, but I was like, she was up there, and I was holding around the waist, sort of almost. <laughs> I mean, I must have been on her breast. I suppose there's a thought for you. <laughs> But she was a sweetie. She was very sweet, actually. David Bowie, I thought, was absolutely charismatic at Top of the Pops. I mean, I stood there, foot away from him. He was doing Heroes. All he was dressed in was a blue shirt and a pair of jeans. But the charisma that was coming off him, you could almost feel the static. It was amazing. Did you speak to him? I did, yes. I mean, obviously, I was a bit in awe. Um, Hello, how are you? Sort of, I mean, very... But, I mean, he was just amazing. That, to me, is what charisma is. I did meet Freddie Mercury. (laughs) And he was pretty amazing. Another charismatic person. I mean, oh, I mean, a showman. Even to be in a room with him, he was a showman. You couldn't sit and have a chat with him because he'd have to be so flamboyant. And he was just always full-on, as a full-on showman. Amazing man. You're quite popular with the gay community, aren't you, because of the sort of songs that you sing? Yes. Is that a relationship you cherish, as it were? Yes, I do, because my best friend is gay. He's a wonderful person. He really is a beautiful person. Lots of pop stars these days are sort of getting their kits off and lads back. Did you ever do any saucy pictures? I did once for The Sun. 
well, it wasn't meant to be saucy, but the guy, I remember in Trafalgar Square, I was leaning against and he kept saying, push them out further and pull that down further. And I was thinking in a minute, I'm going to be popping out. And I think that was his plan, but I kept myself... I don't know whatever happened to those pictures, actually. <laughs> They're around somewhere, no doubt. Did you get lots of saucy fan mail? And... Yeah. Yes, I used to get some bloke. It wasn't naughty, but he used to keep sending me about the Ides of March, and I didn't know at that age what the Ides of March even were. And he used to send me reels of, reels of letters. Beware of the Ides of March, beware of the Ides of March. You see, you do find very strange people out there, and I've found, even in the last 10 years, 15 years of travelling around Europe doing things... You sort of sometimes get the ones outside the hotel and they're clutching a paper bag and inside is all your old albums and they're all sort of scrunched up a bit and they stand there and they go, can you autograph please? And you think, oh bless, they've been standing in the rain and they've been... But they never buy a ticket to where you're performing and I always find that bizarre. Did you have any awkward moments with fans or any stalkers or anything like that? Yes, I did in Sweden. They all slept outside my bedroom because this guy, I can't remember what we called him now, he followed me everywhere. And he managed to get his way up to the floor of the hotel. And I was so nervous I couldn't sleep. And so the band used to take it in turns to sleep outside the room on the floor. I mean, it's worrying, that sort of thing. And it, it, it sort of makes you think, oh, I don't know if I like all this fame in the public eye. Do you feel that you let your career go, you let it slip? Because, I mean, it seems to me that artists have got to stay on the ball all the time. Yes, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. But it all depends whether you actually are bothered about your... I mean, I think what happened after Bidu and I did Rolling, which was a track that we did when the roller skating craze came out. And I remember sitting in an interview with Duran Duran, and we were all listening, you know, had to play a bit of the record, and then you had the interview. We were all round, round table. And Nick Rhodes turned around to me and he went, because it was going, when we're rolling all around the floor, wheels off. And he went, Janelle, this is you. And I actually felt embarrassed because things had slightly moved on from the disco. It was when Duran Duran had their first single, Planet Earth. So they, we were sort of all promoting our stuff. And I actually thought, my God, how embarrassing to have a track about roller skates. And Because as quick as the craze came in, I think it sort of went out again. And I was going around clubs doing... PAs on roller skates, I had to learn how to roller skate, which I was good at actually, luckily, and I remember when Nick Rhodes said that to me, is this you, as if to say, with his nose almost going God, bloody hell, give us a break and maybe I thought, maybe it's time to kind of retire at that point But in your sort of pop heyday in the 70s, you were sort of normal looking woman, rather than a rake thin stick that you'd have to be now wouldn't that be fair to say? Buxom, I think they used to call me. Or I was the girl that never got her feet wet in the shower because of my big, because I had big breasts. Always did have from the age of well, eleven, I think I started developing. But during was, the sort of pop years, yeah. were you happy with your physique then? Did no. you feel you're a bit overweight? Yes, then? and also the industry. Like nowadays, people walk around pregnant, don't they? They show their bump. Yes. yes. All the girl singers are like, yeah. I'm pregnant and proud, and I'll show it. Mm-hmm. In my day, it was. If you were pregnant, it was almost, oh, no, she's got pregnant. Damn her. You know, disaster, that's it. We'll never sell another record. So the record company were like, you've got pregnant? I was well, I'm sorry, but these things happen. We've got a video shoot. What are we going to do? So there is somewhere a video of me doing rendezvous in Harrods, walking around with with a box in front of me. You know, like as if I bought something. A big box, as if I just bought a big dress or something, and I was carrying it home. And that was to hide the bump. Which, when you think about it now, it's so ridiculous. Why couldn't I have said, 
in those days, you just couldn't do that. And the record company were always saying, lose weight, lose weight. And I used to do the starving. I used to think, oh, I've got a TV in two weeks. Right, that's it, starve. I mean, I was only young. I was only a kid. And you forget that two weeks isn't long enough to, you know, that wouldn't really dent. It's not long enough to actually then do a TV and make yourself look any better, really. It's funny how you do grow up and you do learn as you... You, you just get I me mean, now. I'm 49, and you, you think, God, I was a right cow. I would n- not listen to anyone because I wasn't prepared for somebody else to tell. It was almost criticism, and I didn't like that. And I was like, No, I'm going to be, you know, like I am. And I suppose I should have listened. But then, on the other hand, I put on weight after I had Max, and I stopped working after I had Max. That was probably a contributing factor because then you don't have the pressure on you, and you can just sit back and eat and do what you like. And how do you feel now looking back at footage of yourself or pictures? Oh, of dreadful. Do you think that, you know, being divorced and having a child and being a single parent damaged your career? Do you think people looked at you and thought, oh, no, no, wrong image now, you know. If she was young and available, she would be able to sell her a bit easier. I think possibly the weight didn't help, actually, right, with that. Mainly, more, I think that was more of the issue than having a, mo- a child because I think a lot of people, even them days, would have had single mothers Um, I suppose the love I had for Max was far outweighed any I mean he was my life really for that period when I didn't work very much it changed my priorities actually it really did yes because I I was travelling a lot and I missed him walking I missed his teeth I missed a lot of things that mothers you need to be there for that and I was in Singapore or I was in Japan or I was somewhere else and then I thought no I'm not I'm just not happy leaving him all the time, so I thought, no, I'm going to just stop. So I went back to doing sessions again. I never, ever missed the travelling or the... Because I had Max. I couldn't be self-indulgent enough to think of just me, me, me. I had to then think about this baby. It had to be looked after. And... Do you regret sort of withdrawing slightly from, from your career? Actually, if, if anything, no. I think it's actually been to, to my advantage now, funnily enough because people now are getting interested in, in me again, and it's almost as if, where have you been all this time? And because the 70s and the music seems to be coming back again, it, it seems to be on all, all the time, doesn't it? And people have been sort of saying, well, where have you been? What have you been doing? And Who were your real friends from the 70s? Linda Lewis was a very good friend. I'm friends with Linda, just Linda. When you say friends, I mean, I'm going for lunch with Patrick with the hot chocolate down in Brighton. I, th- I think it all depends what you mean as acquaintances, friends or friends. I mean, Linda I would talk to, yeah, and I'd confide. But there's lots of people you know that you'd go out for a meal with. And well, Alan Williams has been, you know, the Rubettes, he's always been a friend. I kept myself away from showbiz parties. But there is a story, actually, to tell about my weight. I got an invite to go to the House of Commons in the early 80s I think it was for all the people that had number one records and Elton John was there playing the piano and it was a big all the big people not like the one the BBC did and you know I didn't go because of my weight because I was I felt so embarrassed I was big and I thought I can't go like this because Trevor Horn will be there and he hasn't seen me for years and he'll think gosh he's got fat and I really that's a regret actually there's a regret for you that I wish I had gone damn well should have done I should have just have you got much memorabilia from your career I've got lots of clothes um, old dresses and things I never kept a scrapbook because I find that's looking back and I always like to look forward I've kept cuttings and things just 
oh, I'll keep that one. But there's been loads of things I haven't kept. I suppose, in a way, I should have done, because looking at Josh now, I'm thinking, well, maybe he's going to get older and think, my grandma, gosh, she was a number one artist once, and he would have probably gone through it all, but... Do you think you've been given the credit that you deserve? No. That's something I... People in, the, in music would give me credit. If you spoke to um, Charlie Parker or somebody like Trevor Horn that's actually a musician, they would say to you, Tina Charles, quick, good, vocal range, fantastic, brilliant. If you speak to the public and maybe DJs at times, you get, oh, that little girl that sang I Love to Love with a squeaky voice because that's all they seem to... It's like they've, they've not actually looked outside the box at anything else I've done. Musicians have worked with me. They've seen how I work. I've always had recognition from musicians. So do you feel overlooked? I feel a bit forgotten, yes, at times. I think in this country it is a bit different. In this country it seems to be that you're as good as your last hit. And when the hits go, that's it, you're finished. We just move on to the next person. In Europe it's different. They seem to go with you and they go along with you and they keep with you and you have a fan base. And All these years I've stayed in the background and never, ever would I push my... I never have done. I've always stayed in the background. But then on the website now, it's funny how I'm getting these fans that are coming out the woodwork from, you know, I mean, somebody yesterday, either somebody said I've, some bloke in Kuwait, I've lifted the dust away from his life. That's a dust. That's a fan. And I'm thinking, my God, these people are now, still saying this now, which I find quite humbling in a way. How often do you get recognised as soon as you mention your name to a shopkeeper? Oh, everybody, when I sign my... I mean, it's funny... I went through that period of naffness. I call it the naffness, cheesy, oh, anything to do with Tina Charles or Carl Douglas or, you know, that sort of disco area was so naff. And now people, because the song seems to be played on heart and all the oldie shows and everything, and I'll sign my credit card and they'll go, what, the Tina Charles? And I usually go, no, 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 I just look like her. Just the same name and walk out because I can't be bothered to go through the, yes, it is me. How satisfied are you with your career so far? I'm very happy that I'm still working, actually, mm. because, you know, a lot of the time, years ago, you'd be finished. You, I mean, once the hits dried up, you're finished. And although people probably do, because I get people all the time when I when they're saying about the shops and you go in and you give your credit card, and, oh, the DT, <coughs> Charles, you're still singing. Or didn't you use, no, that was it, didn't you used to be that singer? And I'll go, well, I still am. I've mm. never done anything else. Mm. But because you're not in the public eye, people mm. assume you've, you're working at the, on the checkout or something or you know, sort of doing gardening or something. And I always say, no, I'm still working. Just tell us what you're up to at the moment, you know, what's happening work-wise with you, because there's a couple of albums on the way, isn't there? That's right. I'm recording, actually, next week right. a, a new album. And I'm doing something in Sweden right. with um, Sani, Sani X, who remixed I Love to Love in the 80s. I'm doing shows in France, right. and um, I've got a remix of I Love to Love coming out which is, even though I say it, very good. So do you have, like, a tour, or you just play the odd date here and there? I'm in discussion about a tour at the moment. Um, I'm doing the odd date here and there with 70s artists in France at the moment. We're doing sort of a little mini-tour. Which other artists? Oh, Anita Ward from Rima Bell. Bell, Justin Brown. Brown, The Pasadenas. Are you not doing those British ones where they have all... I did one four years ago. I did the Channel 4 Big Breakfast right. with The Real Thing and Odyssey, but all they actually did was just... I mean, they didn't interview me or anything. It was no. just that I closed the first half of the show or something. Would I love to love? Of course. Yeah. It'll be on my epitaph, that. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get away from that. Yeah. 
you get stuck with it, I'm afraid. But I kind of think, well, that's the way it is. I mean, did Frank Sinatra ever get fed up with doing my way? Probably, but... What would you like for yourself in the future? I'd like to just be as I am, very happy. I'd like to... You know, some people say to me, you can't be for real. Nobody can be this happy in the morning and always happy and things happen to you, but you tend to bounce back up again. That's the way I am, I think, within. And I just like to hope that I carry on being as happy as I am. I, I don't want for anything, really. I'd like to do another album and like to work with Bidu again and for us to really do a classy album. That's my dream, really, to go in the studio. And, and I do have the respect for Bidu and working with him again in the last couple of months has made me realise just how damn good he is, really. Um, and it, it's, it'd be nice for him to get back into... Because he's been doing a lot of Indian music and yeah. stuff. And it'd be nice for us both, I think, to get back together. I would actually love to do a track with Seal, a duet. I would really... I think he's got the most fantastic voice. He would be the guy I'd really love to do a duet with. I'd like to get back on top of the pops and... That would be interesting, wouldn't it, as a grandma? <laughs> going back on top of the pops... I mean, that would be just fantastic, wouldn't it? So we'd come full circle from all those years ago. So let's be honest, none of us are getting any younger, and I think there is life out there. It's lovely to be in the music industry, and it's lovely to have the life I have at the moment, working and everything, but one day maybe I'll just think, well, I can just put my microphone up and maybe go and have the grandchildren. And Does it bother you that you'll always be remembered, no matter what you do in the rest of your life, you'll always be remembered for... Particularly, I love to learn. No, it doesn't bother me because I think you have to think that, that I'm grateful for it mm. because it's nice to be known for something. Mm. I mean, how many people will go to their grave and think... You can look at it two ways. I can think, well, as we were saying earlier about yeah. the Elton John starters, I never yeah. got to that degree, or the Barbara Streisand or the whatever, but in my sort of little life, how many people can say that you can go to Israel and Brazil yeah. and Sweden and any country mm. practically in the world and say, Tina Charles, I loved... And they'll go, oh, yeah, we know that. Mm. And to me, that, that is actually a hell of an achievement. Absolutely. It's a lovely song, actually. I mean, it really is a beautiful song. It's got a melody, and that's where we're missing now. That's why we're going back to the 70s, I think. Mm. We've lost our melodies. We've gone to just kind of beat and... Mm. Where's all the melodies gone, mm. the lovely tunes? Do you not look back now and think, if I hadn't taken that ten years off, I'd still be up there and everyone would know where Listen, you didn't hear rolling. If I'd have carried on the course I was going with rolling, I would probably have been in the early grave by now. I think the problem happens that you can sometimes do a bit of overkill. And I think at the time I was becoming a little bit like Leo Sayer did, where every TV you put on, he appeared, or his voice appeared. You thought, oh, she'd just go away. Too much overexposure. And I did get a bit like that with the BBC. I was doing all the shows and every show I was on, I don't know, I don't know what would have happened, whether I would have made a load of more of NAF records and then really been remembered for so many NAF things, whether it's better to stop and bring out nothing for ten years and then do this album with Bidu that is going to be new stuff, might actually be better. How do you want people to remember you after you've gone? As a very caring, happy person who would, who would always give up... I would always give up any of my time for somebody else. I would give up anything. If a friend said, I need you, I would drop everything and go. And I think I'd like to be remembered for being a caring person. As an artist? As an artist? I'd like to be remembered as a girl that did actually have an incredibly amazing vocal range. 
I don't think that will happen, though, because, as I said earlier, people just remember me for that song. They don't seem to have an idea of albums, and if they'd listened to some of the early albums, you'd have heard me doing a lot more mellow, different sort of stuff. 